A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now, you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Khan and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela's not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Angela. Hi, Abby. Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Hi, Abby. How's it going? Great. The end of the year. Yep. End of the year. Getting there. Um, so this is our last episode of season two. Yay! So congratulations to you both for making it through another season. Yay. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story. I think I might have told one of you, but I was doing a reference check for an intern who is fantastic. And I hope she gets the job of her choice. She had multiple people vying for her. And one of the references said to me, are you Robin from a podcast? And I said, I am. And she was kind of excited. And if she's listening, uh, I just want to thank you. You made my day. Um, But we've had a couple of situations where um, we've been contacted by people we haven't heard from for a while who have found us on our podcast. So feeling the love listeners. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. I love that story. The first thing we can say is that we've decided to do another season. So. Yay! I'm like, so good. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so in terms of a wrap up, you guys are going to have to hold me back today because <laughs> and actually it's probably a good thing we didn't record last week because I was on fire. Definitely um, calmed down a little bit, but I was at a DESE workshop. So um, our Department of um, Education and they were rolling out our new IEP. And for those of you in our district who are listening now, then like leaking information, I guess, because I'm too scared to do it at a department meeting because I think you guys will all revolt. Um, but there's a new IEP being released in Massachusetts. The target is this coming winter. And they've released versions of it on PDF and Excel because our vendors, our IEP vendor, paperwork vendors have not yet signed on to take this and convert it into like an eSped or an easy IEP or something like that. But of course, everyone's predicting that will happen. So um, they reviewed all of the portions of it and thought, this is really, really, really poor timing that Desi's expecting us to roll out a new IEP because our teachers are burnt out. Our families are getting their feet under them again after two years of like very complicated um, either health or scheduling issues. Kids are really struggling in terms of attendance and mental health. Our staff are struggling as well. 
And now we're going to be focusing on logistical paperwork. It just Mm -hmm. seems like their target is so off the mark right now and no one needs new things to do. And the students are not um, losing anything because of our current IEP system. So there is no emergency need for this. And I think the people sitting in that office building in Malden need to get into the schools a little bit more before they throw out this type of initiative. So, well, I'm so glad this is your calm, cool and collected version of your opinion, Robin. That's excellent. excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think we can all agree that the timing is tremendously tone deaf and unhelpful. And I totally hear that. Um, I also think, which is maybe the bigger conversation is that when you, um, go through revisions of the IEP, it's usually to fix a perceived deficit um, from some segment of the disability community, teachers, parents, advocate organizations, adult service agencies. And I'm not 100% sure kind of the impetus around this set of revisions really came from because it didn't come from the field of the teachers that I'm aware of or the administrative uh, professional groups. Um, And I think there's this bigger conversation to be had about trying to maybe fix the um, transition to adulthood and adult system, uh, lack of entitlement realities via the K-12 paperwork system, right? And I don't know that that's really where the fix lies when it might be a lack of political will to properly fund support and and build out the infrastructure of the 22-plus system, Um, because I feel like the public school system in Massachusetts is very well regarded nationally and the special ed uh, infrastructure is as well. So I think we have to watch the next pieces. And I think the self-advocacy movement, the um, self-determination movement and transition are probably some of the, the forces that have been pushing this forward. And I think that you know, those are big workforce issues, housing issues, employment issues that uh, I don't know that fixing a couple boxes on the IEP in Massachusetts and making Robin crazy um, will change. Yeah, I mean, I you're right. The transition thread is much more noticeable in this new mm-hmm. IEP. There is more student voice and family voice yep. um, throughout the plan as well. So I think probably your instincts are correct. Um, However, the process seems incredibly more daunting, even though uh, feedback from Desi is like, we're trying to streamline things. You know, when someone says you're trying to streamline things, you're really not. And it's more complicated. Harder. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And I just remember, I mean, Abby, you and I have lived through an IEP change. Um, Yes. That was probably like 20 years ago. And It took a long time to get people on board and writing really thoughtfully, well-written, comprehensive, and technically correct IEPs. And Angela, I'm wondering how long it takes attorneys to understand these documents because the dispute resolution process is not going to end. And what Desi is saying is that you're going to have a point where the people will be living in two documents right? So teachers will be having to have some students are still on the old plan while the new plan is rolling out, right? So you could have a situation where you could be disputing new IEP and an old IEP, depending on where they are in the process. And like, what are attorneys going to do? Like, have you guys been thinking about the new IEP and the components and how does um, the BSCA's 
verdicts from cases influence how you um, support districts in what they need to write or don't write in IEPs? Well, I mean, for me, you've pointed out a lot of um, what's it called? Traps for the unwary, because at the end of the day, we're always told by, by the BSCA and by the case law that the FAPE that's offered has to be reflected in the document. So the grid is very important and the document has to stand alone. And then you have testimony that supports it, but you can't have a grid that says you, uh, a BCBA is providing service. And then in reality, someone else be providing the service. Like the grid has to, and the IEP has to reflect what's being implemented. And, you know, when we go to settlement conferences or mediations, like the testimony surrounding the issue is important, but at the end of the day, it's the document that's the most important. And Abby and I have had that said to us a million times. And I mean, for me, I'm very sad because it took me multiple years to even understand how to read an IEP. And now I'm going to have to learn it all over again. But it's a catch-22 because these types of issues are kind of boons for lawyers because it requires legal assistance. On the other hand, it is very complicated to have two different IEPs in play. And now to say, like, is this the IEP? Like, did we do the new IEP right? Did we fill it in right? And then what I'm most concerned about is um, this idea that now the IEP is going to be reflecting information that we don't know. So when we have parent feedback sections and all of that, we can identify who's the reporter. And when we're reporting on goals and objectives, like it's clearly coming from the school. And I have always said that the IEP is our document. It has parental input. And then if there's disagreements, they can partially accept, partially reject, and write a document that lives with the IEP. Now it looks to me a little bit more confusing because we have these three buckets, these three boxes of areas that we're not necessarily in. And now we're sort of having to accept different things at face value, which is okay, but we have to implement it or we have to create goals and objectives in response to something that we're not even sure that is accurate. It's sort of a hearsay component. So I don't know. I mean, I also think the timing is terrible um, and totally disconnected from what's happening with boots on the ground in school. I mean, give us a fucking break. Give us a minute to breathe and recalculate. Like everyone said, oh, you know, this year is going to be normal. And it's not been normal. So we're hoping that next year is going to be sort of whatever the new normal is, but it probably won't. So it, everything is happening at, at sort of this rapid pace. And the idea that we need to change a fundamental document seems a little bit of a reach. So I'm working my way up into as much of a frenzy as you, Robin, um, but we'll probably should revisit it in season three and sort of see where we're at. Yeah, I think it's a like three parter where it's kind of like roll it out, explain it, um, see what the implementation really looks like and then collect on it. And I, I just think all these things are very well intentioned and are usually coming from a, a good place and a place of improving kids outcomes. And the question for me usually just is like, really, like this is how you're going to it's kind of like a botched rollout. And if the teachers don't receive it well, it's an unfortunate um, outcome. So so that's something that's happening. Maybe we can shift to something that's really a little more positive. How about that? 
Well, do your positive piece because I have one more blam against Desi. Oh. Do like a sandwich, right? Okay. So okay. negative, positive, negative. The thing I'm um, interested in and I'm thinking about how to, and if it applies to, to our K-12 context, is there's a new um, documentary out. If folks had seen a dozen years ago, uh, including Samuel, which was um, a documentary um, by Dan Habib, who's a filmmaker out of New Hampshire, about the inclusion of his son, Samuel, in elementary school. Well, he's all grown up now, and he completed and matriculated through the entire public school system. So his family made the choice to have him be very included. And he's now in a community college um, program and is in his 20s. And so there's a new uh, check in with him documentary um, about adult issues and adult topics, dating, uh, sex, employment, independent living, et cetera. And so um, I'm thinking a lot about how we want to possibly use that either in our parent um, forums or with our transition program or with the whole community, um, because it's a really awesome resource. So I'm going to put a plug in for it. And I think maybe we can do a review for it next season and really um, talk about it once it's out and people have seen it. Uh, so it, right now it's free streaming on the New York times and um, Sam used his Toby to write a op-ed for the New York times, which is maybe even a first and pretty cool. And uh, I would encourage people to get familiar with it and check it out. It's 22 minutes long. So it's like a short film and um, it has a lot of resonance with these things we were just talking about with the IP, Robin, to be honest with you, because it's all about the obstacles of adult living and, and, and the return on investment of inclusive special ed in the adult system. So it's really kind of timely. So. Yeah, it's also free on YouTube. So if um, you can't get it on the, the New York Times. And I remember um, loving, um, including Samuel, we've used that in many instances and trainings. And so I'm excited to see this as well. And Samuel is making a ton of money on the speaker circuit and anyone knows him and he wants to um, speak for free on our podcast, you can send him our way, but we, we can't afford him or else we'd have him on ourselves. So we're going to have to make do with our own critique of the film. The other film, um, which is um, also around the adult world and some of the obstacles and socialization and dating and stuff that I love is called How to Dance in Ohio. And that's from 2015. It's really, it's a full feature film and it's just wonderful. So you can put that on your list as well. What's that about, Robin? Follows um, maybe seven or eight young adults who are part of a autism social group and they plan a, a dance and um, what that experience is like for them in terms of inviting someone to come, choosing what to wear, thinking about the environment, thinking about making sure that the space feels comfortable for themselves and for their group members. Um, but it, it's really well done. And it's, it's really, it's a moving film. You should put the link to that in the, in the notes too. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll definitely do that. And I think that's on Amazon. All right. So here, here's my negative slam. And then we'll, we promise we'll, we'll end with one positive thing. And Abby and Andrew are laughing at me because I'm just so, um, I'm just so upset with Desi at this moment. So Desi's trying to raise the MCAS competency for 10th graders for next year. Again, the timing is so out of control. We had two years of competency determination that if a student was earning a passing grade in a class, that they would earn their high school diploma. 
Then we had a year back with the state testing where we had to implement um, the actual tests. And actually, if I remember correctly, the standardized version was even the legacy version. And now we're going to go to an even higher competency standard just makes no sense to me. And again, it seems so out of touch with where people are in terms of student mental health, in terms of standardized assessments and the pressure that um, students are under to achieve at this like one high stake marker in such a disruptive year just to me is really outrageous. Well, I think that that's a really interesting thing that we should start to look at over the whole totality of next school year, because certainly our state and many states have come up with a concept of acceleration, that coming out of pandemic uh, loss and impact, uh, states and communities need to accelerate learning. So you you hear this word acceleration, there's an acceleration roadmap out there. And um, I think that that's an interesting, like, bureaucratic context, right? So what they're saying is like, in order to make up for something that slowed down kids' progress, we should overdo things to accelerate, to get back to some perceived normal. And I think that it may be that the decision to move the competency standards up at this time is related to this idea that by doing that, the rigor will rise for people. And this reminds me of our retention conversation two episodes ago, right? Because it isn't necessarily true that uh, the reality is that there are kids who will learn the test and learn the new harder version of the test and move forward in that way. But there are also kids for whom that will not be a relevant change. And so I think that we need to talk about this over like the long haul and see who we're really talking about. Um, But in my experience, um, this is a political decision and usually not an educational decision, which is why it drives you nuts, Robin, because you're thinking about it as an educator and you're thinking about it really to kids and families. And the people who make those choices are actually thinking about it from other vantage points. Also, politically, nobody's against progress, right? It's like one of those topics where it's like easy to agree because it's a good talking point and it sounds great. Uh, but the implementation and the and the reality and the negative potential con- consequences, uh, nobody wants to discuss that, right? Good teaching has been moving away from one cumulative exam. The SATs are being um, looked at with less importance as part of the college process. And so it makes no sense to put a higher emphasis on one single exam in part of your high school Um, graduation requirements when a student is completing four years of classes with lots of data and progress monitoring throughout the whole four years in terms of moving on and accruing credits. And then you're going to put that emphasis on a a single exam where philosophically the higher ed is moving away from that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So you're talking about high stakes testing uh, and like, uh, that kind of summative assessment. And it it is, it does seem like a dinosaur model, right? Yeah, that's true. And and we don't really know what the fallout is for that in terms of at the, at the college level, in terms of standardized testing, we're in the midst of like, what does that mean for applicants? And what does that mean for schools and universities are just now collecting data after the first year of that to see outcomes for freshmen. Because this idea is that, is that SATs, I think this is not responsive to your question, but I'm interested in this. So um, (laughs) SATs uh, like allegedly are there to be predictors 
of how someone will do in college, right? So um, they've been collecting data, I think, locally at some colleges, and I've read about some other colleges on the East Coast. And what they're finding is when they took a class of 50% with SATs in the range that they want and 50% test optional, no scores, they're both doing fine. There's no, you know, um, substantive difference between how people do freshman year on how they score on a test, right? So the more data we get on that, the more impressionable that decision is going to be in terms of schools actually staying away from, from standardized tests. Of course, the flip side of that is that now we have like an overabundance of applications for schools without that component. And then what does that do in terms of sheer review of applications. For me, like the idea that a standardized test scores is going to reflect how you do on anything, I, I think doesn't really make a lot of sense. I just think it's it's important that it either falls within the range of where you are in terms of your packet or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, why doesn't it? My view of MCAS is it's a reflection on the building and on the teachers. It's not really a reflection on the kid. And so this idea that we're trying to infuse MCAS with higher standards for the kids to then pass, to then use as a factor in making decisions while also putting more pressure on the building and the teachers to now raise the level for what reason, it just seems counterproductive to me. I'm not a big fan of MCAS, period. And um, I don't like teaching to the test. Um, I think that's an antiquated subject as well. I'm watching my my eighth grader like, do a bunch of prep things for, for the test. Um, I don't know, it seems counterproductive. So this idea that we're now going to raise the stakes higher on a, on a test that I don't think does much for the individual seems counterproductive. Well, and all the accountability systems are built uh, for a purpose, right? And some of it is to give parents information about their kids' progress, but a lot of it is to have the state prove back up to the feds, right, that they're um, using federal dollars appropriately and that uh, it's a program. Abby just said what I said in like a, like a fucking word cloud of nonsense. <laughs> just summed it up. So keep what I said. And then that is my point. And Abby said it better. So well, there you go. That's exactly yeah. it, Abby. Well, thank you. And that's why it feels artificial to you right now, Angela and, and Robin, because it seems so out of whack with the truth on the boots on the ground uh, reality. Um, but I guess the, the other piece I would just put out there is that we are almost to the end of the year and that people have done a really, really good job of holding it together under strange circumstances again. Um, and I think this year felt like, you know how in those tidal wave movies, like a disaster movie, there's this moment where the water like draws back from the beach and it exposes all the like shells and the people are like, Oh, it's so pretty. And they like wander out into the marshy tide. And then the, the fricking tsunami like comes and murders them all. That felt like this year to me, because what I got was this energy of like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be normal. Oh, look at all the pretty seashells. It's so nice and calm. And then shebang, we just had the biggest spike in COVID we've had nationally this year, and also the continued culture wars around every aspect of public education ad nauseum. And so no matter where you fall on the spectrum or where you live or work, you've experienced some chunk of that, right? We It's like a universal experience. And I think people did a really good job trying to keep school going. And I, I'm very proud of that, even though I'm exhausted by it. I agree. I think the day-to-day -day has been great 
I feel like the teachers have worked really hard. I think collectively, everyone is trying to do their best. I think the students are extremely resilient um, and I'm very proud of them. And I'm proud of our seniors who really missed um, a whole bunch of opportunities over the past four years and are moving on to their next steps in a positive way. Um, So I totally agree. And I think next year when we do our podcast, we're gonna be focusing on probably resiliency looking at how um, students are returning after the summer, looking at our data points as we always do, thinking about what people's roles are um, next year in terms of supporting students with mental health issues, students um, who are still struggling. Closing the achievement gap is something that we always think about. And then I'm interested in really creative um, programming that people have discovered because I think one of the things that has come out of this is like um, teams are thinking like totally out of the box. Like the year is crazy anyway. Let's just try this. And those are usually the programs that benefit the kids the most. So listeners out there, if your teams have tried something super cool, let us know. I think the other thing that's interesting is that you're reading about the great resignation, people not going back to work or, you know, school will continue. School will always march on. There is no great resignation of school. (laughs) Kids will continue to be educated. One thing that we learned in the closure in from March 2020 to June 2020 is that I don't think we'll ever close schools again. I think that was a one and done. And people now know that school is at the at the very nucleus of all community, of society, of family. The school will continue. It will always continue. And things get worse. School will continue. Things get better. School will continue. So I think that that's um, as we look around and see see all these changes and some some entities no longer being in place and new things coming out. I think school will continue to move forward. You're right. This idea that extreme challenges allow for extreme change is is good and true. Um, And um, I think there's a lot to be positive about. And if you don't feel like being positive, then you just got to dig in and find something because I think there's a lot there. So we hope everyone has a really nice summer. We're definitely going to be doing a couple of pop-up podcasts over the summer, but we'll be back in full force in the fall. And um, we hope everyone has a great end of the year. Thank you to teachers, administrative families out there. Thank you to students, parents, lawyers, lawyers, everyone's doing the best that they can. And um, I think we, we all kind of need to take a step back and appreciate each other. And we thank you listeners and Abby and Angela, it's always a pleasure to work with you. You two are like my favorite people. So I appreciate for today, you. your favorite people for today. <laughs> yeah. Well, you definitely like us better than Desi. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Bye. True Have that. a good day. Thank all right. You. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.